Thank you for tuning in to the podcast. In this episode, I'm joined by a colleague who is admired and respected in the school community, and I'm sure many other circles. He's being celebrated as part of our Black History Month programming in the Office of Multicultural Affairs by allowing him to share some of his story and how he experiences this community on my podcast, Uninterrupted, and I'm honored that he was willing to be a guest. All right, I'm here with Amadou Tala. Mr. Tala is an instructor of modern languages who teaches French here at the academy. In the little bit of time that I've gotten to know him, he hasn't been a man of many words, but when he speaks, what he has to offer is profound and significant. Whereas I'm one who speaks to fill silence too often. <laughs> I can stand to learn a lot from Mr. Tala's approach and seeming belief that one's words carry great significance. He also has this regal air about him that I admire from afar. And Mr. Tala, I'd like to thank you for joining me to have this conversation. How are you? I'm hanging in there. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm doing well. Uh, thank you for that introduction. I, mean, I think you just added a few more strings that I, I might use to nah, identify man. myself. Listen, when you speak, it's like nuggets coming. It's golden nuggets. I'm like, all right, Mr. Tala speaking. Silence. <laughs> thank you. I appreciate that. No problem at all. So you haven't gotten used to the winters in New Hampshire, huh? Not really. I accept them because they're not <laughs> going away, right? But uh, there's nothing to get used to, seriously. Yeah. So do you layer like I do in the winter? Like I have multiple layers on all the time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's cold. I don't just layer. I super layer. It's like crazy. Okay. Talk to me about that. What do you mean by super layer? <laughs> like two, three pants, <laughs> you know, like a... Undershirt, a shirt, sweatshirt, and then whatever I have to put on top of that. I mean, you know, so. That's the way to go, man. I think I learned that my first year uh, coming to the U.S. in 1998 in Massachusetts. They told me layers, and I just went all out. So you believed them. You trusted them, and you went with the layers. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And in terms of you talking about coming here in 1998, so it's obvious that you didn't grow up here in the United States. Right. Uh, how do you identify and where do you call home? The home question is a little bit more complicated, right? Okay. But I'll start with the identity question. Um, I would say that I am uh, a black African um, Muslim male um, and a Fulani. So from the ethnic group of Fulani, uh, in Senegal, West Africa. Okay. Um, what's interesting about all of these five things that I talked about, there's really not much choice in all of these, right? Um, I could also give you another five <laughs> ways that I can identify, which is I'm also an immigrant. I'm a husband and father of four kids, yeah. um, uh, but I'm also a teacher and a musician. All right. right. Those are choices, right? But being black, not a choice, just came in that skin. Being from Africa, you don't choose what continent you were born in, right? Yeah. Even your ethnic group being Fulani was not a choice. I just grew up with my, my native language of Fulani. Um, and also um, being male, right? Um, being a Muslim. You could say, well, you can change those two. Yes, sure. But I, I, it wasn't my choice to come into this world, um, you know, in those categories at first which I think makes identity really, really interesting. 
And obviously being an immigrant, that's a choice. I could have just stayed in Senegal. Yeah. Uh, husband, father, teacher, musicians, those are all choices. Um, and, it's, and it's interesting how when, when I identified myself first, I just chose the first five categories. And it, it's, it's, it's not until I was done, I was like, hmm, not too many choices here. Yeah, yeah. You know, which is interesting. You know, that's a fuller response than I usually get from folks. They usually stop at race and gender. Would you say that all 10 of those are salient for you? No, I would say uh, being Black and being a Muslim are, you know, more salient for me. And that's how I identify on a more regular basis. Okay. Can you say more about that, please? The reason is... um, especially was, you know, being black and being here, right? It's that combination. It's not just being black. When I was in Senegal and I was black, it was not a big deal, Um, you know, because everybody was black or most people were black. If you were white, you would stand out, right? Um, So being black there, I didn't really think of myself. Um, I didn't think of my identity or my blackness as any... Like there was no reason for me to feel threatened, um, either physically or intellectually. I was just black. And in the area where you lived, did everybody identify similarly in terms of their ethnicity? Uh, In Senegal, not in terms of ethnicity. There's a few ethnic groups. Yeah. And Fulani just being one of them. And obviously that's where you can see a difference. Um, in how you identify, because now everyone's black. Okay, so now what? Oh yeah, I'm black and Fulani. Okay, so that kind of um, puts you in a certain category of how you see the world. I'm black, I'm Fulani, and I'm Muslim. That's also, you know, that also gives you, puts you in another category. Um, and on, all of those have shaped my identity. But I would, I would definitely say, um, being black has stood out even when I was in Senegal. I mean. Um, I'm from a country that was colonized by the French, right? So um, even, I mean, even there, there's, there's always, there's still this um, identifying yourself, um, you know, as opposed to, for example, a Eurocentric view of the world, yeah. right? I'm not a tubab, as we call white people in Senegal. What's right? that again? Tubab. Okay. A tubab. That's, that's, you know. And what's the interpretation? It means, it literally means white person? It just means a white person. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And obviously, you know, so you're, you're not a tubab. It could mean a lot of things in yeah. Senegal. Um, if somebody says to you, you're a tubab, it could be a compliment, but it also be like, mm, sure. yeah. Mm. You don't care about people too much. Like only care about yourself. Individualistic. Right. Versus this, this common um, um, sort, of, sort of like social living that we have of, uh, as a style of life in Senegal. Sure. But now, anyway. what, are the, what are the vestiges of uh, colonization that you can speak of that still exist in Senegal or where you lived in Senegal? Well, um, there's, there's, first of all, I think the most blatant one is, is linguistic, right? Um, French is taught in the schools in Senegal. It's the official language. Um, you grow up 
uh, learning French, speaking French, working in French, right? Reading books in French and sort of putting your own language uh, in the back burner, right? Not really ever learning to think in your own language, right? Mm. And, and that's something that I've always wondered about. Like, what if I had grown as somebody who spoke Fulani or Wolof, you know, the main languages of Senegal, um, how different would I be now? Um, because just taking quite a few years learning another language and then learning to think in it versus this is the language you speak at home. That's the language you go to school in and you start thinking right away. So there's, I think there's a huge difference there. So I do you dream in Fulani or, or French? It depends. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> I think it depends. Um, yeah. It, it, it totally so it depends on the dream. I think it depends on the dream, right? Absolutely. Interesting. Interesting. Well, dreams yeah. So I'm multilingual as well. English is my third language. And it took many years for me to only dream in English. I don't dream in other languages. As a matter of fact, I can't remember the last time I spoke a different language in my dreams. So, oh, really? And yeah, English? Yeah. That's interesting. So what are some differences between Fulani and French? Oh, completely different. Okay, can you hear any French in Fulani? Because like Creole, right? My family speaks Creole, they're from Haiti, and French is peppered in Creole. Um, I understand French because I can speak Creole, but the French can't understand us, isn't that something? Right, right. right. Um, And so I wonder if there's any similarity there. I would say it's the same, Um, but uh, I guess maybe the difference is that Fulani is a language, an African language that is sprinkled with some French, just a little bit, because some of the words, you, you don't really, even if we have them, we're just not used to using them, like days of the week, um, numbers, things like that. It's just natural for me, if I was speaking Fulani with my family, to say something like, Momiato um, Samdi. Samdi, that's French. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> so hold on, what did you just say? I heard mother and Saturday. Oh, you heard mommy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I said mommy, yaton, Sunday. I will go there on Saturday. Oh, okay. All right. right? Yeah. So it's completely different. And, and Fulani and Wolof also completely different. And there's some other languages like Serer and Jola. They're all different, completely different. But at the end of the day, in order to work in Senegal, where you're from, uh, do you have to know French or can you get by just knowing Fulani? Depends what you're doing, but I think you you have to know French because it's the official language, contracts are written in French. Most likely you will work in, you will, like French is gonna be your, your working language. So yes, you definitely should know French. Okay, all right. So you moved to the United States full-time in the summer of 98. Mm-hmm. How did you experience life here versus your life at home in Senegal? And that goes back to the original question of where do you consider home? And when you were talking about winters in New Hampshire, I'm like, ah, I'm not hearing a home vibe there. Or right. but maybe, maybe there is. Mm-hmm. So um, before I actually answer that question, I just want to say something about the home uh, um, um, question before I forget. 
So the funny thing is that when I go to visit Senegal now, they say, when are you going home? Ooh. I know. It's like, what do you mean I'm, when I'm, I'm home? Right? So, so to them, you're like, you have another home that's not here. You're not from here anymore, right? Mm. I mean, I've been here 22 years, but still, right? And then um, is New Hampshire my home? I don't know. Probably not, right? Um, if, if New Hampshire is anything like Boston, because I hear people say in Boston, even if you live there for 25 years, 30 years, you can never say I'm from Boston. I don't know if that's true, but that's what I'm I've hearing. I've never heard that before. Okay, good. Okay, maybe this yeah. is not true. Um, but if I have to say, if I have to choose a home in the U.S., it would probably be Springfield, Mass., simply because that's where I, I you know, landed the first time. Yeah. Really, the second time, technically, because the first time was 1996, Lake Placid, New York, for three months. Then I went back. Second time I came to the U.S. was in 1998 in Springfield. And I, I lived there for 17 years. Um, and I really still miss Springfield. Right? It just has a different vibe. Uh, it might be because I see more people that look like me there. Because I can find the stuff that I need yeah. more easily. <laughs> yeah. uh, I don't have... Stuff like what? Like what? What might you be talking about? I know, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like I've I've gotten really good at cutting my own hair here mm. because I had to, yeah. right? Um, anyway, so, um, but to go back to um, differences uh, between living in Senegal and living here, um, to go back to what I said first about just how you identify, right? Um, so coming here, I, I sort of feel like I lost this peace of mind of just, of being black and not having to think about it too much. Right. So now I have to think about it, especially, um, in New Hampshire or wherever, everywhere I go into town or I don't know, in other towns around here, I always, you know, like think, okay, I'm black. And what are people assuming about me? What are they thinking about me? And and it it's it's sort of unfortunate that I that I'm thinking about that. Yeah. Because I, I think I should be able to just walk into any place without having to think about that. Um, but I've learned that maybe that's not how you preserve yourself. I feel like you always have to be conscious that you're black, just for your own safety. Sure. And like be walking around clueless, right? You have to also kind of think about what people might think about you. You you have to think about um, what that might mean sometimes for your safety, right? Sitting in, in, in a public space and always facing the door just in case, you know, things like that. I'm very much uh, captivated by what you're saying because I have very similar experiences. And I'm wondering actually, um, if over time you've come to feel um, more comfortable in the area or if, and if there's a difference between how you experience the town of Exeter versus the campus at Phillips Exeter. And even if there's a difference in the way you experienced Springfield versus Exeter, which you talked a little bit about. Yeah, obviously, People will say, well, my family would agree that Exeter is a lot safer than Springfield, yep. right? Um, where they will say there's like crime rate, 
when I was living there, it was 19th most violent city in America or something Eesh. like that. It's crazy, right? Uh, so this it, it, it is safer to live here. That's for sure. Um, however, for some reason, or for a reason that I actually understand, I don't necessarily feel safer in who I am. You know what I mean? Here, I don't feel, I feel safe walking down the street. Um, but I don't necessarily feel great. I don't know if that makes sense. And of course it does. Yeah, and I don't know if that's feeling safe. Like if you're walking down the street, being conscious that you are the only black person walking down the street um, and what that might mean for you, then are you safe? Yeah, you know, so I have a visceral uh, feeling every time a pickup truck passes me. Exactly, right, exactly. So so I, I feel safe on campus. I feel very safe on campus. I feel valued. I feel that my colleagues care about me. Um, and I've made a lot of friends here that I think have helped me uh, stay here because, you know, the, uh, I've, I've seen somewhere or I've been in a seminar where they were saying, like the average is three years uh, for a faculty of color to either stay or leave places like this, uh, ah. like boarding schools and stuff. So you go past the three years, you, you might be okay. You might stay a little longer, right? Um, so making you know these connections, I think, have helped me stay up to now, and this is my sixth year. So so there's there's well, hope. let's keep it going. Let's get let's keep the good times rolling. I mean, I'm on, on year four, so now I'm thinking they got me. I, I made it beyond year three. I didn't know that. That was a magic number. They got you, man. They got you. <laughs> Definitely. So you've talked. So, yeah. So so I feel yeah. safe on campus. I don't know if I necessarily feel safe uh, in the town of Exeter. And in that sense, when I say I feel safe, I really mean feel welcome. You know what I mean? Yep. I don't necessarily know. Maybe I do. Maybe I am welcome, but I don't know that. I've never really tried to go into any um, like cafes restaurants, things like that in Exeter, except for Stillwells with my family, right? And maybe D-Square, yeah. friends. Um, so that is, that's a work in progress. I feel a lot safer in Portsmouth for whatever reason. Is it because it's more of a city? I, because I think in terms of demography, it's still very white in Portsmouth. Right, yes. Um, but it's more of a, a city than Exeter. It could be, yeah. I think I think that's the reason. And did you grow up in a city? I did. Yes. Ah, okay. All right. What would be the cues for you to let you know that a place is safe? Oh, I think it's it's a um, if if it's a public space where you just can. Yeah, you go in. I think it's how a people's facial expressions, smiles, yeah. whether they're saying hi to you, whether they're talking to you and things like that. Um, I just, I can just sense in the atmosphere whether this, is, this place is welcome or not. It might have been something I developed over the years. I don't know. Yeah. No, uh, like I, thing, like you can, yeah. I can relate to a lot of what you're saying. All right. Um, you know, I go into restaurants and interestingly, 
I have developed a mechanism to shut out my surroundings. So I get in a zone to not pay attention to the people around me because the second I feel like there are eyes on me, I'm not going to want to be in that place. And it's a major reason why I like going into Boston to visit my mom. She lives right outside of Boston. I take her grocery shopping. We go into the community where I grew up, which was predominantly Black. And I like that feeling of blending in. Whereas when I walk into a place here, if I don't get in the zone, I'm going to feel eyes on me. And and, and there are eyes on me because when I've had relatives come here, they're like, yo, how do you deal with all these people looking at you? And I'm like, I just get in the zone. I know. You stop noticing that they're looking at you. Yeah. Absolutely. It's all about blending. I try. You know, funny story. When my, my son, when he lived here for about a year and then, you know, one day we were going out of town and we the closer we get to Boston he notices black people and he's like so excited he's like pointing at them I'm like chill out <laughs> more it's okay yeah, yeah. so I mean you know it's it's just uh you know you you miss that you miss this blending in right so yeah and day to day there's a management that comes with that not blending in and you try to take care of yourself in different ways. And I guess that's how you make it beyond year three. If you develop enough of a community, you just feel like you can exist here a little bit longer. Absolutely. Um, in terms of existing, I want to talk about inclusion. Mm-hmm. And um, we spent a lot of time talking about racial identity thus far. I want to talk a little bit about how you experience the United States as a Muslim man. Mm-hmm. Um, and if that has changed over time. So you got here in 98 yeah. and here we are in 2021. Was the feeling different in 98? Yeah, I think if you ask any Muslim who's been here uh, 98 and now, I mean, the difference would be automatically they will probably point to September 11, right? That just came and changed everything. Um, so I would so I would say before September 11, um, obviously there were challenges. Uh, a lot of those challenges are still here, but post September 11 just brought in a whole new set of challenges. Um, and those challenges are not only are they here, but they've gotten worse, right? Um, so the Isl- Islamophobia, for example, has just multiplied, right? And and as we've witnessed that in the last four years, right? Um, so So I would say being a Muslim in the U.S., before 98 or in 98, I could go to the mosque um, without thinking about um, what other people might be thinking about me as a Muslim. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm just gonna take just that. Um, and then post September 11, it was a little harder right, to even identify as a Muslim. Um, I remember walking into a dollar store and there was this black kid and he had, it was a Springfield and he had a name tag, his name tag said Abdul. So as a Muslim, I was like, oh, a brother. So I asked him, are you a Muslim? And right away he was like, yeah, I'm a Muslim, but I don't practice it. Oh. You know, and so he felt the need to, to say, you know what, I'm distancing myself, right? Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, I could relate to that because that's, that's what I felt like doing for many months after September 11. I was confused um, about, you know, what just had happened. Could I still be 
identify with Muslims, if Muslims are going to do these things. And then obviously um, this was uh, sort of a, a pathological, sure. right? So, so I understand this was, this is like a, a pathology. It's like something's wrong with me and, and I'm glad that it, it's, it's cured, right? It's just this confusion of thinking um, I'm Muslim, so I'm responsible for this. No, I'm not responsible for this. You know, it's crazy people who are responsible for this. And how do you experience being Muslim in this community at PEA? And do you feel included as a Muslim <laughs> man? Oh, that's, I think that's a work in progress. Um, I would say that I feel more and more included. Um, and I have to, I have to really um, express my gratitude to everyone who has worked um, around the schedule to make sure that uh, the Juma slot appears there um, on the schedule. And, and it's funny, I was talking to Stephanie um, right when we started talking about this and I was, I was saying to her, um, my vision really is to see the word Juma on the schedule, right? On Friday, and and you know, and she was very supportive. And a lot of people at Oma, student activities, religious services, even the, the uh, religious department. A lot of people were very supportive, and that's how we came to have this slot. Um, and what is Juma, and why was it important for you to see it on the schedule? Okay, so Juma is the Muslim community prayer um, that Muslims have every Friday. Uh, usually between 12.30 and 2, right? Most with different, different um, communities praying at different times, but roughly it happens from 12.30 to about 2 p.m. Um, and it's a community event for Muslim communities to come together and talk about issues of the community and to also remind one another um, of your daily practice taking care of yourself, taking care of your, um, you know, your spirituality, uh, your faith and things like that. So, so um, the Muslim Student Association has Juma every Friday. And in the past, it used to be during lunch. And then right after we had to kind of scurry over to, to e-format. Um, and then this fall, that completely disappeared. It was just assembly. On yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so after working uh, with Scott um, and with a lot of people in the community, um, we had several meetings and we were finally able to find a solution to, to, um, to create or to make some space um, for the Muslim students um, at PA to be able to, to worship on Friday together. So, which is really- That's great, that's a major win. I, I think it's really important because that's being visible, right? Yeah. You're yeah. talking about being visible. You're visible on the schedule now. So that's great. Um, so that's, I think that's a really a huge step. Um, and I think uh, there's, you know, the other thing um, probably that, that I would say is, a, is that I'm grateful for is the um, prayer space that we have in Philip's church. I don't take these things for granted because I know a lot of communities don't have that, right? Yeah. It's actually one of the things, the things that I had found um, attractive when I was first applying here. 
to have a prayer room, you know, for Muslims, you know, to be able to go and pray in between the hours. So, so that's, that's really a good thing to have. Yes. And you didn't have an issue with it being in a church. Um, no, no, uh, because, well, it's a church, right? It was a church and it's a church that has sort of opened its doors for other faiths to come and, um, and, and be able to worship. Obviously that's a step, right? Yeah. Uh, probably the next step um, down the line would be to have a worship center for each of the faiths on campus. Sure. Yeah. That would be ideal. Yeah. Right. Um, until then, I, I'm satisfied with with having a place on campus, even if it's in the church where I know I can meet some other Muslims and we can worship together. Actually, I catch myself saying I'm at the masjid, which is the word for mosque. It's not a mosque, right? But I catch myself saying I'm, I'm at the mosque. I'm at the masjid. But, you know, it's obviously it's a little prayer room. But um, is that in Arabic? Yeah, it's Arabic for mosque, masjid. Do you speak Arabic? I do. I actually oh. you introduced me as the French teacher, which is what I was hired for. Uh, and at the same time, I've taken over the, the Arabic class, the senior Arabic class, which I have been teaching now for a year and a half. This is my second year um, teaching the Arabic class for seniors. All right. So you teach French and Arabic. Arabic. Yeah. Okay. So you learned uh, Arabic, and I'm assuming you learned Arabic because you wanted to read um, the Quran. Bingo. And, and how long did it take you to learn Arabic, and how's your experience going teaching it? Okay, so so just like you've guessed, right, I, I grew up in Senegal, 96% Muslim, right, a population of about 16 million. Um, and so I grew up mostly i mean i grew up with arabic prayers right because you know to be a muslim to pray in, in as a muslim you have to pray in arabic you have to say so i really always wanted to to be able to understand what what, what you know what i'm praying about what i'm saying right um and i have some brothers who actually um, majored in Arabic, learned the Quran, ne actually never even went to school, like a French school. They were just like, right? Um, but I, I was not at that, at their level. So, um, so I wanted to learn. So when I, when I came to Springfield, I joined the community program that was teaching Arabic. And I sort of graduated from there. And then I did um, some Arabic um, independent study in grammar um, and then worked with a lot of people, um, both online and in person. Uh, yep. One of them was former Arabic teacher here, Nuri, who um, who I I did a lot of Arabic grammar with, and then with um, also the other Arabic teacher, uh, Ahmed Jabari. Yep. So they all also kind of helped me and guide me. And then I had this program in Cairo, Egypt, uh, where I went to to do some more training. So so that's how that's how I I I, I did it. Still you know, learning, though. Yeah, and I'm trying to learn a little bit of Arabic. Um, for a time, I had a, I'll say, a friend in mm -hmm. college. Uh, she was Egyptian, and she taught me a little Arabic. And uh, I tried to get lessons here and there from Mr. Jabari ah. uh, before he left. And every time I saw him, I'd ask him to teach me a phrase. Really? And, and he did. And so I still remember some of those phrases, but I'm not 
by any means ready to teach a class. What do you remember? <laughs> I'm, I'm, just I'm far from that. It's, <laughs> what do you remember? Oh, gosh, no, don't quit me right now. We'll do that off the air. We'll do that off the air. Yeah, way to go, way to put me out there. Kifik. Bechir, Ana Bechir, Kifik. Oh, there you go, you did it. All right, I remembered one of the phrases. There you go. And you said it beautifully, too. Kifik, that's it. All right, and and for our um, audience, what does Kifik mean? That's how are you. Yeah, yeah. Right. That's how I, and you said it in, in the Egyptian dialect. You didn't say it in the formal Arabic, which is kef haluk. You uh, said kefik, which is... Now you told me for a loop. You're like, yay, right? <laughs> which is great. That's really good. I think my, my Arabic students will, they will love to hear you say this phrase. Maybe next year I'll audit your class. Please do. All right. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Mr. Tala, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to have this conversation with me, especially at this hour. Definitely. I feel honored. So I want to thank you for having me on your, on this podcast. And um, it was, it was, it was great. Where is home for you? Has your home ceased being thus at any point? In what ways has your identity shifted over time, if at all? Can you relate to Mr. Tala's quest for inclusion here? He provided some gems for sure in this episode. I hope you appreciated what he offered as much as I did. At the very least, I hope you appreciate having Mr. Tala in this community as much as I do. Until the next episode, keep reflecting.